A thrill of righteous triumph shivers through Inquisitor de Silva. After so many years of study and training, he is on a field mission at long, long last. An opportunity to directly prove his devotion to Droom and the Lord Inquisitor. Admittedly, he has only been tasked with piloting the strike team's skyship, the Dead Reckoning, rather than actually recovering the transgressors, but even so, it's a trusted role. Enlightenment strike team pilot. Not the sort of thing they hand out to just any Inquisitor. No doubt about it, his star is on the rise. He checks the ship console's horologe. The team are taking their time, but are still within mission parameters. Just. He turns around at a sound behind him, pretending he doesn't feel the surge of relief as an Inquisitor clambers up through the drop chute. Seemingly worse for wear, the battered figure beckons him over, and he rises from the pilot's bucket seat, curious and anxious. "'What is it, Inquisitor?' he asks. "'Have you recovered the targets? Where are the rest of the team?' The returned Inquisitor can only shake their head and point urgently down the chute as they try to regain their breath. The silver hurries over and peers down. He is greeted by a scene of utter devastation. Where the Opera House had been, there is now only a shattered ruin. He sees no sign of movement, no sign of life. He also doesn't see the Inquisitor standing behind him as they flicker and glitch, their appearance changing from the pale blue and white armoured robes of the Enlightenment of Droom to that of a young woman, bruised and bleeding, but unbowed. There is no warning as Mina Montessario shoves Da Silva hard in the back, and he takes one fateful step forward, out and over the drop chute. Oh, bugger! Inquisitor Da Silva cries, arms flailing in panic. And then he's falling. Hello and welcome to The Lone Adventurer, an actual play solo RPG podcast with me, Carl White. I will be your narrator, your games master and your guide as we follow our heroes on their journey into the unknown. For this game, I will be using the Iron Sworn Starforge ruleset, as well as a variety of other systems, tools and tables as they take my fancy. A word of warning. The following scenes may contain mature themes and disturbing imagery. Listener discretion is advised. The adventure continues. In Season 1 of The Lone Adventurer, we followed the adventures of Mina Montessario, agent of the House of Whispers, as she thwarted a plot to destroy the city, battled the mad terrorist cult of the Great Machine, and became ensnared in the machinations of her cousin, Alexis, as he forged an alliance between Houses Montessario and Tereth, in the form of a wedding between her and Duke Tristan. In Season 2, we followed the adventures of the Web, a crew of Kairos scoundrels, against the backdrop of a gradually unravelling civil war as they pursued their twin goals of uncovering intel on the criminal shapeshifter organisation known as the Unseen, and disrupting the terrorist activities of the machine cult. Along the way, they ran afoul of the doomsinging seer Heart of Snow, 
They earned the enmity of the Vampire Lord, Tortimus, Field Commander of the Undying, and now leader of the mercenary company the Silver Nails. They revealed Mina's old tutor, Dr. Crop, was responsible for the pathogen that killed Mina's spymaster boss, the Whisperer. They infiltrated the machine cult in pursuit of the origins of the deadly explosive Infernal Powder, and learned that it was in fact created at the machine's core, the result of a process of disintegrating summoned demons on an industrial scale. As a result of all of this, the web came to a grim hypothesis. A plan was being hatched between the Unseen, Houses Montessario and Tereth and the Seekers of Droom to turn the machine cult's infernal powder on the League of Free States, one of the last holdouts against the might of the Kairos Dominion. A plan intended to shift the balance of power within the Dominion. And the marriage between Mina and Tristan appeared to be part of that plan. And so the web disrupted Mina's wedding, destroyed the unseen supply lines and snatched Dr. Crop from under the Seeker's noses. An impressive triple gambit, but one that came at a terrible price. The web's hidden headquarters was attacked by multiple foes and in the ensuing battle, the building collapsed apparently burying the crew and all their enemies under hundreds of tons of masonry. But not, it would appear, their newfound ally. Mina leans against the skyship's polished wooden bulkhead and sags. The fight, that climb up the drop line as the building collapsed around her, and then that cold-blooded killing... All of it so close on the heels of that disaster of a wedding. She feels as if she could sleep for weeks. But even that is not the worst of it. It's the knowledge that really weighs her down. That cold, inescapable knowledge. Those two members of the web she'd taken to her family crypt, Valerian and the girl Tatters, hadn't told her much, but they'd told her enough. That an armada was being assembled in secret, probably by her cousin Alexis and agents of House Tereth. An armada hidden below the continent of conflict. That it was being supplied, courtesy of the Unseen and via the Cult of the Machine, with enough infernal powder to turn the League of Free States into a shattered, smoking crater for the next hundred years. And that all of this complex, genocidal conspiracy was just a ploy the Unseen and their opportunistic allies to seize the reins of power from the Arch-Dominar. Never mind chaos on the streets of Kairos, or the perils of enabling lunatics like the Cult of the Machine, or the untold thousands of innocents in the Free Leagues who would pay the price for this grubby ambition, blown to bits as the bombs rained down, all for the opportunity for some entitled bastard to grab even more than they already had. She'd listened to the pair of them, with scepticism at first, then with disbelief, and finally with growing fury. She'd known, of course, that Alexis was a self-serving snake. She'd known that since she was little more than a child. She'd just never dreamed that his moral void could go so deep. It was almost too much to take in that the war her father had died opposing was about to flare into even brighter light once more. All of this, and as if that were not enough, that her dear friend Crop was somehow involved in these machinations, 
responsible for providing the Unseen with the weapon used to kill the Whisperer. That the House of Whispers had some sort of side hustle in play, in bed with the cult, stockpiling their own reserves of infernal powder. The tectonic plates beneath the visible world are shifting, hidden powers manoeuvring below the waterline. She almost wishes she wasn't aware of it, that she shared in the blissful ignorance that the vast majority enjoyed, that now that she has had sight of the truth, she has no choice. She is compelled to act. She'll be damned if she'll stand idly by while the world burns. The question had been what to do, and now she knows. The wild, half-formed plan had been gradually taking shape from the moment that skyship smashed through the Opera House roof, and now, standing here on the enclosed flight deck, it comes fully into focus. There is no more good she can do here. The city has turned on itself, faction upon faction. It is impossible to know who to trust. The place is a death trap. No, her target, at least initially, lies further afield. If she is to thwart the Unseen's plan to prevent the destruction of the Free Leagues and the usurpation of the Dominion, her first destination must be far, far away from Kairos. What she will do when she gets there, what possible impact she can have, she pushes from her mind, one problem at a time. Her first thought needs to be for her friends. I mentioned in this season's Session Zero that I would be building a character sheet for Mina using the Starforge rules. But how to convert a character built in D&D, and quite a mechanically complex character at that, into a rule set as different as Iron Sworn Starforged? Well, in fact, it turned out to be much easier than I'd anticipated. In Starforged, you get a three, two twos, and two ones to split between five different stats. Those stats are Edge, which represents quickness, agility, and distance fighting ability, Heart, which represents courage, willpower, empathy, sociability, and loyalty. Iron, representing physical strength, endurance, aggressiveness, and close quarters fighting ability. Shadow, representing sneakiness, deceptiveness, and cunning. And lastly, Wits, representing expertise, knowledge, and observation. I tend to find that it helps when envisaging a new character to start with the highest and the lowest stats first. What are they best at, and what are they worst at? Well, for Mina, I think it's clear the wits are her defining stat. She is a technical prodigy, a mathematical whiz kid, she's super smart, and she has some amazing skills. The three has to go into wits. On the flip side, she's no brawler. If she gets herself into a close-quarters scrap, you know she's in trouble. So it's a one for Iron. As we've just seen, she's pretty sneaky. Shadow seems an obvious choice for one of those twos. And in a choice between Heart and Edge, I think Heart has to take it for my second two. That leaves a one to assign to Edge. She's no great shakes at ranged combat either, I'm afraid. In addition to her stats, she starts the game with a number of assets. Normally in Starforged, a new character begins the game with four starting assets, each with just one of three abilities unlocked. And you gain more assets and abilities through hard-earned experience. 
but I'm going to play it a little looser with Mina. She is an experienced character, so she's going to start the game with more assets and abilities than is normal for a starting character. I've picked the following assets out of the gate, which I think capture the spirit of who she is. Gearhead. She is good at crafting and repairing technology, and she can also create magical devices, given enough time. Infiltrator. She's good at sneaking into places where she's not supposed to be. Gunner, representing her arcane pistol. And I've also created a last asset of my own called Technomancy, which allows her to gather arcanicity and use it to power spells. We'll get to the details of how these work, as well as any additional assets that may well get added shortly, as they come up in play. And really, that's about it. I set some other attributes at their starting levels on the sheet, so a 2 out of 10 for momentum, and the maximum 5 each for health, spirit and supply. More on those as they crop up. But for now, let's take a quick look at how the scene developed. Now, I knew going in what Mina's plan was for this season, and so after a few bits of setup, I started my game by taking the most important first step in any Iron Sworn game. I had Mina swear an Iron Vow. This move states, When you swear upon iron to complete a quest, write your vow and give it a rank. Then roll plus heart. The game comes with an assumption that characters swear solemn vows on spiritually significant iron artefacts. Well, that doesn't really fit into my setting, so I'm going to remove the iron aspect. I envisaged what she swore to do, which was to disrupt the Amada at conflict and I gave it a rank of extreme to represent how difficult this was going to be. Then I rolled plus heart, and I got a weak hit. In Starforged, the way that you determine success, failure, or partial success is by making a series of moves like this. They are mostly all phrased in a pretty similar way. When you do X, roll plus Y. To make a roll, you take a six-sided die called the action die, and you take two ten-sided dice, they're called the challenge dice. Then you roll all three and compare the numbers on the challenge dice to the number on the action die, adding in any bonuses from stats or other sources. If the action die total exceeds the number on both of the challenge dice, that is a strong hit. If it exceeds only one, that's a weak hit, and if it exceeds neither, that is a miss. Pretty simple. So in this case, I rolled my three dice. I got a 5 on my action die, and I added my heart score of 2 to make that a 7. My challenge dice showed an 8 and a 5, so I'd exceeded one of them, but not the other. A weak hit. Here's what the weak hit result says for the swear and iron vow move. On a weak hit, you are determined but begin your quest with more questions than answers. Take a plus 1 momentum, that took me up to 3 momentum, and envisage what you do to find a path forward. Well, Mina's plan to find a path forward was to board the skyship and take control of it. That prompted another move, the face danger move. And this one states, When you attempt something risky or react to an imminent threat, envisage your action and roll. If you act with deception, stealth or trickery, roll plus shadow. I got another weak hit on this move with the following result. You succeed, but not without a cost. Make a suffer move, minus one. 
The suffer move I chose was Endure Stress, which I got another weak hit on, resulting in my momentum going back down to two. That was reflected in the fiction by Mina sagging under the weight of all the challenges she faces. And that was it. A simple, elegant system that seemingly spins stories out of nothing. I love this game. All this rules explanation has gone on for a while, but before I draw it to a close, there's just one last thing I want to touch on. The topic of AI as a writing aid. There has been a huge amount of hype lately surrounding ChatGPT and similar tools, and it occurred to me that perhaps this tech would be a useful thing to add to my solo RPG toolkit. Well, maybe I just suck at using the tool. Or maybe the subject matter I'm asking for input on is too esoteric, but I've found the results to be pretty poor so far. And worse, extremely time-consuming. For this episode, I tried something pretty simple. I tried using the Bing built-in AI in Skype to come up with a name for the Inquisitor's ship. I'm sorry to report that I gave up after about 20 minutes of asking a range of questions like provide me with ten badass names for ships belonging to zealous inquisitorial religious orders, which the AI either couldn't answer or couldn't answer to a reasonable standard. In the end, I came up with my own name, The Dead Reckoning, which I'm pretty happy with. In addition to sounding fairly badass and grim, it has a double meaning. In navigation, Dead Reckoning is the process of calculating the current position of a moving object by using a previously determined position, or fix, and incorporating estimates of speed, heading, and elapsed time. Okay, enough wittering. Onwards. Hi, I'm Steve Morrison, and I've combined my love of writing fiction and tabletop gaming into a solo actual play series called Errant Adventures. Join me as I explore different stories in different genres using a variety of my favorite tabletop role-playing games. If you enjoy space adventure, check out Season 1, Tarquin, which follows the adventures of a young herald running from family drama. Or check out the new Season 3, Cry Havoc, and follow Mender Alexis Wolf as she tries to help the people of Skoroko Station. If fantasy's more your jam, check out Season 2, Talon and Crest, where members of the Crest Mercenary Company try to make their way in the city of Heartvale. I've also got shorter runs of stories covering a range of genres and games. Whether a long-form campaign or a short series, Errant Adventures features stories told at the speed of dice. So join me on the podcatcher of your choice as I discover where the story goes next. Mina digs out her extra-dimensional box, opens it, and reaches a hand in. When she pulls it back out, another hand is gripping her own. Cadmus emerges from the impossibly small space, a faint, translucent bubble of energy covering his head, generated from a brass collar around his neck. He is followed a moment later by Barbican. The devotant shudders. That's the last time I'm going in that thing, he announces, eyeing the box with distaste then glancing over as an impassive Barbican. That place was deeply disturbing, Mina, not intended for the living. We can discuss your delicate sensibilities later, Cadmus, Mina says, dropping into the pilot seat and tugging on levers. Right now, my one and only priority is getting us out of here, before the Bluecoats, or the Seekers, or the Seven-Know-Who-Else turn up and decide to shoot this ship out of the sky. Hold on, you two. 
What of the web? Cadmus asks, but Mina just shakes her head. You didn't see it down there, Cadmus. If any of them survived the destruction, it would take hours at least just to dig them out, even if we could find them and avoid any other survivors. No, alive or dead, I'm afraid the Shadow's crew are on their own. Perhaps it is the Seeker livery that keeps the other ships away. Perhaps it is the strife in the city, spreading the forces of law and order too thin. Whatever the reason, the Dead Reckoning's flight from the scene of destruction goes wholly unimpeded that night. Even when their vessel sails out of the city, east into open void, rather than along one of the two customary chain routes, there is no sign of pursuit. Cadmus, who had been up on the top deck, clambers down a ladder into the cockpit. He looks alarmed. Mina, I can't help but notice that we seem to be leaving the city, and not by one of the chains. What exactly is going on? He has good reason to worry. Nearly all skyship traffic coming into and out of the city, indeed travelling anywhere across the expanse of the chained world, flies along the world chains. Not only do these chains provide safety in terms of proximity to other vessels and somewhere to land in case of loss of power, but they are imbued with potent magic, accelerating vessels that travel along their span to many times the speed they could attain flying over open void. Flying the uncharted void, by contrast, is fraught with danger. Not only is travel over the void sea slow and difficult to navigate, but away from the safety net of the chains, a traveller is subject to all manner of perils. There are tales of pirates and scavengers, sky squid and void spiders, rumours of outlaw outposts, battling factions, deadly storms, and no end of other unspeakable horrors. And of course, below them, is the ever-present, ominous threat of the Void Sea itself. The Void, as far as anyone knows, is a vast expanse of nothingness that stretches out endlessly in all directions. It is a place, it said, where time and space seem to lose their meaning. Once the sun sinks below the horizon, the sky above transforms, revealed in all its wild beauty away from the obscuring lights of civilization. A riotous symphony of colour, stars twinkling within a glorious celestial masterpiece. There are few sights more beautiful. But below, the clouds are a deep, dangerous black, save for the lightning that occasionally illuminates them from within. During the day, they too transform, taking on a deceptive, ethereal beauty that belies their true nature. The corrosive cloud layer, that grows more dense and more deadly the further one descends into it, is the single biggest reason why only the desperate or the deranged ever venture away from the safety of the world chains. A ship without power is doomed to an endless fall into that roiling, poisonous hell, doomed to see their ship's hull slowly corrode and burn away in the acidic clouds before eventually succumbing to agonising death. No sane city traveller chooses to travel the void sea. Mina sighs, locking the flight controls and turning to face her companions. It's just us, Cadmus. Just us, between the unseen and their bloody conspiracy. We don't know who to trust. We don't know who is compromised. That means we have to act alone. The web have bought us time. Now we need to find that armada below conflict. Find it and stop it. And the only way we can do that is if we drop off the grid. 
It won't take long for our enemies to realise that we have this ship. If we travelled the chains, we'd be stopped and boarded by the first passing Dominion ship, and that would be it. No, this is the only way. We have to risk the Void Sea. Her companions stare back at her, speechless. Cadmus, because he can't quite believe how awful this plan is, and Barbican, because that's just what he does. But it's plain, there are no viable alternatives. Though he doesn't look happy about it, the healer is about to grudgingly accept when his eyes go wide. Mina, he says, pointing at the paned windows that make up the entire front of the flight deck. What's that? In the distance up ahead, a long way off but drawing swiftly closer, is a skyship unlike anything either of them have seen before. It is seemingly haphazardly constructed from random spare parts and salvage, a chaotic hodgepodge of a ship, built from scuttled carcasses of numerous smaller vessels. By the seven, Mina mutters, not quite believing how quickly her luck on this mission has turned sour. Scrap pirates! I wasn't sure who else was going to be joining Mina on this trip, and so, before playing, I rolled for it randomly, between Barbican, Cadmus, Tatters, a vampire, and Dr. Crop, and the dice gods handed me back my two original companions. Well, I'm a little sorry they did in a way. It might have been nice to get some new social dynamics in play. But we go where the dice lead us, and so the OG trio it is. That also meant something mechanically. I'd need to add an asset for each of Cadmus and Barbican. I used the sidekick asset for Cadmus, which has the following ability, marked by default. Your sidekick has a helpful expertise. In Cadmus's case, that's healing. When you make a move outside of a fight, directly aided by their expertise, you may re-roll your action die if its value is less than your sidekick's health. For Barbican, I used the combat bot asset, and instead of the default starting ability, I selected this one to best reflect his primary role. Once per fight, when you react under fire by using the bot to draw fire or create a diversion, roll plus its health. On a strong hit, mark progress. On a weak hit, face the cost as normal, but then you are in control. Lastly, there was the matter of the ship. Starforged assumes a new character begins with a ship asset, and that's now true for Mina. In addition, because it was established in the fiction when the ship smashed its way into the Opera House, I'm adding a modular asset to my ship, Reinforced Hull. This asset says, your ship is clad in iron. When you withstand damage, add plus one. On a strong hit, take plus one momentum. Well, the Dead Reckoning has magical protective wards rather than iron plating, but the mechanics are the same. This is one tough little ship. Next, I had a choice. How would I join Mina up with her allies? It seemed logical that she'd kept them safe by hiding them in her magic box, and so I looked to see how that box worked in light of the Starforged rules. Mina has the gearhead asset, and one of the two abilities available on that asset reads, With sufficient time, a couple of hours or more, you may face danger to assemble or enhance a device for a powerful but limited role. On a hit, the device is ready for use. One time only, when you or an ally make a move aided by the device, take an automatic strong hit. I ruled the box was already active before the game began, 
so the instigating face danger rule was not required. It seemed that stowing her companions in the extra-dimensional space and then retrieving them safely and unsuffocated required a further face danger roll, though, which, in light of the gearhead effect, was an automatic strong hit, with the following effect. On a strong hit, you are successful. Take plus one momentum. This is a slightly different approach to Mina's magical crafting mechanics in D&D, where she had a set list of items to choose from that she could create but I think this is a much more flexible mechanism. It effectively means that with enough time and pre-planning, Mina can pretty much build anything she can think of. I figured with her noble and espionage background, there was a fair chance that Mina knew how to pilot a skyship, so I gave her 50-50 odds, and thankfully rolled a yes. Mina needed to flee the scene of the crime, so to speak, and so I used the set-a-course move to escape the city without drawing attention. This move says, when you follow a known route through perilous space, across hazardous terrain, or within a mysterious site, roll plus supply. My supply was still at its starting level of five, and I rolled a strong hit, meaning you reach your destination, and the situation there favours you. Take plus one momentum. Miraculously, the crew had made it out of the city without attracting attention. So far, so good. Next, Mina needed to start it on a much more significant journey. Rather than taking a known and well-trodden route, she was going to have to try something much more unpredictable and risky. By avoiding the established paths of the world chains, she was going to need to trailblaze a new route, and that meant undertake an expedition move. This one states, When you trailblaze a route through perilous space, journey over hazardous terrain or survey a mysterious site, give the expedition a name and a rank. Then, for each segment of the expedition, envisage your approach. If you keep under the radar, roll plus shadow. The name I gave this expedition was Travel to Conflict, and I gave it a rank of Formidable. Then I rolled, and my good luck ran out. I got a flat miss. On a miss, you are waylaid by a crisis, or arrive at a waypoint to confront an immediate hardship or threat. Do not mark progress and pay the price. The pay the price move is an important one, and one we will no doubt be seeing quite a lot of over the course of this season. It states, when you suffer the outcome of an action, choose one. Make the most obvious negative outcome happen. Ask the oracle for inspiration and interpret the answer as a hardship or complication appropriate to the situation. Or roll on the table. I decided to pick the first option and figured that the most obvious outcome here was another ship. My initial assumption was that it was a ship in pursuit, coming from the city. But I checked and the oracle said no, which meant it was a ship ahead of them. And a detail role on my oracle bot gave me the descriptor Bargain Project. That took me to Scavenger Pirates, perhaps subconsciously inspired by the carnivorous cities of the Mortal Engines universe. And so, here we go, off again on a new adventure, leaving behind the schemes and machinations of the city, and embarking instead on a journey into the great, wide unknown. You have been listening to The Lone Adventurer, the solo RPG podcast played, written, and performed by me, 
Carl White. If you've enjoyed this episode, please consider telling your friends about it or leaving a five-star review wherever you get your podcasts. It really is a huge help. You can find me on Twitter at TheLoneADV. You can email me at TheLoneADV at gmail.com or follow my blog at carlillustration.wordpress.com. You can find show notes for this episode and all the others at theloneadventurer.podbean.com, where I include any links mentioned in the episode as well as mechanics information. I also include a link to a full episode transcript. The story will continue in the next episode of The Lone Adventurer. Thank you for listening.